I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, where we talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect magazine. It's a big week this week as we launch our blockbuster list of the world's top 50 thinkers for the post-Covid age. Now, Prospect has long honoured scientists, writers and artists with different versions of an intellectual hit parade. There was a table of British public intellectuals in 2004 and then things went global in 2005 when the magazine teamed up with foreign policy and produced a top 100 heavy hitters, including the likes of Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins and Noam Chomsky. After putting things to a vote, a tradition which continues, Chomsky took the top spot then. Subsequent winners have included Dawkins, Amartya Sen and Thomas Piketty. But then last year, after a bit of a break, we relaunched the list and included a few more unfamiliar names. The crown was clinched by the refugee Kurdish mathematician Korsha Burka. And this year, we've done it again. Given the radical adjustments that our world has seen in 2020 with COVID-19, it's an entirely new list with no repeats from last year. I'm pleased to be joined by the rest of our editorial team here to recap um, about how we decided on the top thinkers. Um, and after the episode, don't forget, you can vote for your own favourite on our website, as well as telling us, very importantly, all the big brains that we missed. OK, so I'm going to start with the newest member of our team, the production editor, David McAllister, who wrote some of these pen portraits and picked some of the names um, in consultation, I should say, with lots of experts, as we always do. Now, um, David, we called it Top Thinkers for a COVID-19 Age. First of all, how many of these names kind of became important because of the COVID-19 Age? Um, there's quite a few of them which will be new to us just be through the pandemic. But I think the interesting about these names is that they're all people that have been, in one way or another, working in the background for a very long time. So people like um, K.K. Laja, the Kerala Health Minister, um, she was responsible for a very successful response to another outbreak in just, over, uh, just under two years ago of Nipah virus, um, and she's managed to do it again. Um, we've also got Sarah Gilbert, who's taking lead on the response to a vaccine, and she was also looking at a vaccine for universal flu not too long ago as well. Um, we've also got Jacinda Arden, who, of course, we all know already, 
Um, who's also the only politician on the list, I might add. She's um, the Prime who... Minister of New Zealand, just because not everyone can yeah. necessarily know that. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, who has continued with her idea of politics of kindness, if you like, which I think has really shone through in this pandemic. Um, and then also we've got writers and opinionists like Ed Young, who predicted a pandemic like this coming in the Atlantic a few uh, years ago. It's also been one of the biggest critics now of America's response to the pandemic. OK, so we can see then that quite a chunk of the 50 um, like leading names like literally do jump into prominence, even though they were very distinguished, maybe more quietly distinguished in their own fields prior to the pandemic. Um, but, Samir, we're dealing with a whole lot of things here that are really nothing to do with the science of vaccinations and so on, aren't we? We've got all kinds of... I don't know, constitutional scholars, economists and philosophers and all the rest of it. How wide do you think the shadow of COVID-19 goes in this list? It's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, you talked in your introduction, you mentioned the sort of 2005, 2006 kind of people, winners and people who were um, on the top of the list there. And those kind of names, people like Richard Dawkins and um, Noam Chomsky, Christopher Hitchens, they're very much intellectuals, public intellectuals in the mould of essentially people who have opinions about everything. You can go to them and they will have a well thought out, easily disagreeable with line on something. Um, and they're sort of people we put up on pedestals to uh, to opine. And there's nothing wrong with that. And we have a few of those kind of people on the list as well. But I think last year and this year, as we're putting it together, personally, I find a little bit more interesting the people who um, have been beavering away in the background and, and, and uh, um, perhaps have a specialist subject which they're looking at, in a word, experts. And if there's anything that this pandemic has, has been uh, taught us, it's the value of expertise. Um, one could argue that... Um, uh, the journalists at the top of our government, people like Boris Johnson and, and Michael Gove, are the, are, the, are the kind of people who are exactly the opiners, the people who will give you opinions uh, for money uh, once a week on a, a, a newspaper column. But we've seen the sort of the limits of that kind of fly-by-night, um, last-minute burn-the-candle-at-both-ends thinking. And and what I found most interesting were the, were the level of people who have gone in, in and predicted the pandemic, as David said, or are working on um, on vaccines. I mean, we've also been thinking about, obviously, Black Lives Matter and the cultural issues that have been coming up during the pandemic. And I think they're actually quite closely linked in some ways. I think that the fact that people have been locked up and have not been able to get out, spending a lot more time on social media, um, people um, uh, have not had the release mechanisms that uh, you know, the bread and circuses have both been, you know, well, we've had bread, but it's been more difficult to get in the shops and the circuses have been closed down. So, um, you know, our opium uh, of the masses has been cut off. So maybe Marx is right. And we were now sort of seeing people looking at uh, racial injustices, the societal injustices in a in a more clarifying way. And some of the names we have on there, like um, Cornell West, um, the African-American philosopher who's been talking about these kind of things for ages and after uh, the killing of George Floyd was all over the news um, speaking very impassioned way um, about uh, these issues. Um, it seemed only right that him and, and various others we have on the list as well should be up there. Tom, Tom, um, there are some others, aren't there, as well, speaking to the BLM movement, sort of constitutionalists looking at uh, politics more broadly in the US. Uh, I think we had Bruce Ackerman on there, uh, who was one of yours, who suggested right at the start, actually, uh, and Dahlia Lithwick, who's a sort of 
Supreme Court Supremo, who used to write a column for Slate specifically looking at the twists and turns of what was going on there. Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, like the, 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 these are changed times and it's a very changed list. But like, you know, whatever humanitarian emergency might be going on, political power play is always uh, in the background and you can't ignore it. And um, I think it's pretty hard as a current affairs magazine to ignore the fact that there's a fairly important um, American election going on uh, this November, a matter of three or four months away um, now. So Bruce Ackerman, again, he's like fits the Samir mould in the sense that he's someone who's been quietly beavering away at something for quite a long time about how to constitutionalise popular movements. Um, like he regard, looks at American history and says, you know, Roosevelt's big failing was that he never did constitutionalise. Like some readers will know, he had a, a sort of standoff with the Supreme Court, which ended with the Supreme Court um, agreeing to nod his programme through in return for Roosevelt not not actually changing the wiring of, of, of the US Constitution and of the court. Um, and he sees that as an opportunity missed. Uh, I thought he counted as a truly world thinker because he's just as fluent on de Gaulle and Mandela and other people like that as he is on the American founding fathers and, and, and the presidential figures. Also with Dahlia Lithwick, again, sort of like, you know, she's a US Supreme Court watcher, but she's written very, very subtle pieces for us about things like the rule of law and how they are defined as much by culture and by assumptions and by values as they are by institutional processes. So these are arguments, we look at um, elections only this week in Poland, where a lot of these things are on the line that might come out of US academia, but I think now have to prove their worth to get onto this global list across a much broader part of the planet than, than just the US. I mean, it is interesting, there are, I think I'm right in saying, I'm going to bowl this back to someone else in my team to tell me if they think I'm right, quite a lot of people from other parts of the world, it's not just a sort of Anglo-American list um, at all, is it? Yeah, just to speak to that point about the constitutionalism, and it can seem like a rather abstract issue, but it is incredibly important. And I think it is also related to the protests we've seen with Black Lives Matters and indeed um, COVID-19 as well, in that, uh, you know, you, you, you've had incidents where people have been, black men have been killed in America by police officers. It's It's been happening for a while. There have been videos. But when Obama was president, there was a sense that there was a sort of settled constitutional system. And he was a sort of symbol of hope. He could do a great speech. You know, he could, you know, it could be emollient. Um, he could sort of rough off, you know, s smooth off the edges. But with someone like Trump in office, who's basically been baiting minorities for the last four years, this was almost an inevitable reaction and his rule breaking as it were uh and his disregard for constitutional norms has has led to as it were the rule breaking in inverted commas of the of the protesters breaking lockdown rules and all the rest of it so it's in a way it's a connected theme of sort of trust and and trust in um what those institutions mean so i think it was actually very important um uh, uh, uh to get one bit actually on. that i i really enjoyed when i was sort of uh, proofreading your intro to the list uh, in the magazine is when you talked about why we didn't put any pro-Trump thinkers on the list. Yeah, because I mean, it's a feeling that we bottled that. We've we've got um, a couple of conservative voices on there. We've got like some very left wing voices as well as some 
liberal ones that maybe people would associate more with prospect. But, you know, uh, we didn't in the end go for anyone who you could say is really sympathetic to the Trumpian insurgency. I mean, I thought long and hard about this. I just thought it's become a kind of too openly an anti-intellectual movement to take the uh, intellectual apologists for it, you know, uh, uh, the sort of Steve Bannons of this world, seriously. But I am sort of very aware that we're kind of, you know, a magazine for educated Europeans. So I did worry that maybe we've missed something interesting there. But I mean, the state of them at the moment, it's, it's quite hard to find a serious idea, I think. Does anyone disagree at all? Or did anyone else struggle with this dilemma? Or do people think I'm anguishing too much? Well, I definitely don't think you're anguishing too much. I think it's an important question. I actually did disagree until I read your explanation. <laughs> and then, because the way you framed it was as, um, it's difficult and a list of people we think are leading, you know, they're not all intellectuals as kind of their main thing. You know, lots of them are kind of doing practical stuff as well, but it's an intellectual list and Trump is an anti-intellectual character. <laughs> so there's kind of a, a definitional tension there. Um, and yeah, I actually left, when I was, you know, proofreading that piece last week, I left feeling actually quite happy uh, and, uh, you know, reconciled to the fact that we weren't going to include anyone like that on there. I don't know what the others think, like Rebecca or David, um, I don't know whether they agree. Um, I think we do have, well, there's a distinction between, I guess, Trumpian and conservative. And we do have two conservative kind of commentators on the list, including David Frum, who was on the podcast uh, a few weeks ago. Um, so, yeah, I think there's also that subtle difference there. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly, there's certainly some conservative um, voices. Now, another bit of bread and butter for Prospect, normally, Alex, it's something you watch quite a bit, trade and economics, as ever. And as you'd expect, there's a few economists. But did anything jump out at you about the set of people that we'd chosen? Um, I, was, I was interested when I read the nib um, that I suppose you wrote as a kind of an economist-in-chief about Stephanie Kelton. Um, and the way you... Because... We were talking about um, how this is a list for the COVID age. And obviously a big element of that is picking like virologists. But obviously COVID has changed everything, including economics questions um, and specifically the question of debt. We're all going to have a lot more of it now, uh, countries that is. Um, and I was interested in what you, uh, what you wrote about Kelton and debt. Um, and I think I'm right in saying you framed it as central banks have experimented massively on the monetary side uh, in recent times. And Kelton is now arguing for a similar level of bold experimentation on the fiscal side. <laughs> so a sort of um, radical being OK with debt approach. Yeah. I mean, St Stephanie, I mean, so I think debt is the big kind of um, fact in the room, isn't it? After all of this and everyone's been on furlough for ages. Incidentally, we had some other interesting choices there, like people who've um, followed basic income and social policy things for a long time. But with Stephanie Kelton, her decision is very much to just, or her appeal is for um, us not to worry about the debt, to say it's kind of in our head to some extent. And just as it turned out, we could turn on the printing presses to print money um, to bail out the banks with quantitative easing and to increase what they call liquidity. So we could also turn on the um, printing press, as she reckons, in order to like fund government programmes 
directly. It has to be said, this is extremely controversial, as you might expect, with a load of economists who worry that it might end up with Weimar Republic or Zimbabwean kind of hyperinflation. Um, but she says, no, 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 you can keep an eye on inflation and stop doing it when the inflation begins to get out of control. A uh, slightly different uh, perspective. Um, we've got Thomas Piketty, who always we mentioned in the intros, a previous winner who's known as the big kind of inequality expert, but um, is in there this time again because of this question of debt, because um, he's not quite for turning on the printing presses as Stephanie Kelton is, but he is very much for dealing with the debt up front by heavy tax on the wealthy, which he says was done successfully after World War II in Germany and was evaded in Britain. And as a result, we ended up with inflation and they didn't. The only other observation I'd make on, I was looking back at the 2005 list, you know, before the crisis, all those years ago. And the big difference now is that the economists we've got are just more sort of radical and they take a longer view. People used to say in that decade, economists called nice, non-inflationary continuous expansion, you know, that you could just put your hand on Matilla as a central bank and steer the economy to safety in some way. And so someone who could do a brilliant mathematical model of um, why this thing was all going to be all right in the end might look like a world thinker. But after 2008, um, uh, it's not like that now. And I think you're more interested in people who take a long view and can say, well, um, we've seen something like this before, even if we haven't seen it since the Wall Street crash in 1929. I was going to say, I think this also taps into inequality as being another one of the new pressing issues of economics today, which is what people like Piketty is all about. And um, with experiments in universal income from Van Parijs. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. The other huge issue, um, like when we think about pre-COVID challenges, Rebecca, is the environment. And we've got a mix of people on there, haven't we? So we've got David Attenborough who thinks about it in a more obvious way, but we also picked out some artists and people who maybe think about it in a different way. Um, Yes. So someone I put forward is the Californian artist Jenny O'Dell, who wrote a book, How to Do Nothing, which I read earlier this year. And her body of work is very much about paying attention to the everyday. So she's done exhibitions of trash and everyday objects and does lots of essays on birdwatching. And I think I enjoyed the book, but it didn't come back into my head until we were thinking of what thinkers are right for now. And it just seemed like during those lockdown days, the idea of how to do nothing and how to reject the idea of productivity um, and just walk around and walk outside and enjoy what's there seem very, very relevant. And then we also have Mark Post. Is this, is this, the, is this is the guy who, um, who, like, you'll get a 3D printer and it'll print you out a steak? You know, that's, that's the sort of the idea, isn't it? So it's real meat, but created yeah. in, a, in a lab, so you don't have so many cows blowing methane into the Yeah, air. yeah, which, again, is very interesting and in a case of, you know, ideas really touching on everyday life. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. 
My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Fantastic. Now, why don't you, Samir, and uh, tell us a bit about the, the, the kind of novelists and the writers and the creatives on the list? Yeah, I was, it's just always a funny one, this, because obviously writers are doing a lot of thinking, but sometimes novelists, when they come out with, you know, it, the ideas within a novel are not necessarily the most interesting thing for certain kinds of writer. But um, one area where I think that's not the case is in science fiction, which is often uh, poo-pooed or ignored by literary editors such as myself. But we, we picked N.K. Jemison, who's a science fiction writer, an American. She was brought to my attention um, this year because she has a book out called The City We Became, about New York facing an alien invasion. And as I was looking her up, I saw that she'd actually won the Hugo Award for science fiction three times consecutively between 2016 and 2018, which is a remarkable achievement um, in and of itself. Um, I should also add that she's the first African-American person to to have won that award full stop, which again plays into some of the other themes that we've been thinking about. Um, but but her work, and when I dipped into it, you know, it's a, uh, it's this fully imagined universe and it, and it explores climate change and split identities and racial oppression and all these themes are very heavily embedded within it, but it's done within this sort of symbolic universe. Um, so I thought she was a pretty interesting person. The, the other one, and Tom and I, we went back and forth uh, on this on this person a little bit is Sally Rooney. Um, of course, she's you know she's very well known now, um, but I think the fact that uh, a writer in her twenties writing um, sort of literary novels rather sparely written, quite a sort of delicate writer in many ways, um, not a sort of obvious one, um, has sold half a, half a million copies of Normal People, her book. Um, I just thought it's an astonishing achievement. She's obviously touched a chord with so many people, both uh, people in their 20s maybe who want to read about themselves and, you know, maybe people slightly older who want to know what on earth this younger generation is um, is getting up to. And, of course, there was the BBC adaptation, which uh, at the height of lockdown, when everyone was in was in, was in indoors, um, was, such a, was such a talking point. You were a fan, Tom, weren't you? Yeah, no, I enjoyed it a lot. But at the other end of the spectrum in terms of whether it's contemporaneous or not and also in terms of the age of the writer we're talking about is Hilary Mantel now she's writing about Tudor England Samir why is she in contention to be a great thinker for 2050 2020 sorry well she may well be a great thinker for 2050 as well you know these writers do uh, can last a long time but for 2020 well the final um novel in, in her Thomas Cromwell trilogy Mirror and the Light came out this year and by any stretch, it's, it's been an astonishing achievement. The Tudor 
a historical novel was a sort of bodice ripping, basically sort of popular genre novel, but she's transformed it into this investigation of politics, power and personalities. It's all about political manoeuvring. Um, it's all about uh, Machiavellian uh, doings. Cromwell is trying to sort of arrange Henry's marriage in this novel um, to Anne of Cleves because he wants to make an alliance with Protestant states in Europe and he wants to turn England to a more Protestant country. That's the sort of interesting insight there. Um, and then, of course, you know, she's such a she's such a brilliant writer and such a and such a great figure as well. So I felt like that she was someone who really needed to be on there. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, of course, as politics seems to get weirdly more personal, doesn't it, with characters like Boris and, and, and um, uh, Trump, you know, it's, it's kind of like Henry VIII does begin to come back into mind. Rebecca, there's a couple of filmmakers on there as well, which is something you know an awful lot about. Yes, uh, we have two. Um, one is Bong Joon-ho, who's the South Korean filmmaker behind Parasite, which swept awards. And we've also got Greta Gerwig, the American director behind Little Women and Lady Bird. Um, and they're, they're two very different choices, but I think speak to very salient things in our time. Bong's work, if you've seen Parasite, is often about inequality. So as discussed earlier, um, and about what happens when rich families meet poor families. And then Greta Gerwig's, uh, and Greta is very good at stories about families, especially women having relationships with each other. And our Nib points out that exploring that becomes ever more relevant during lockdown. Fantastic. So um, I think we've we've given the the choices there a pretty good airing. We'd encourage everyone, obviously, to go and have a um, a, a peruse of the list um, and vote. And as I say, there is a chance to tell us who we've missed, because there will be people who we've missed. Does anyone on the team want to say a final kind of rallying cry for someone they would like people to vote for? I think quite quite a few of us are fans of Lisa Piccarillo. It's something I picked up during the process. Tell us who she is, because I reckon there's a fair chance that even listeners to the Prospect interview might not know. Uh, so this was like a combination of me and Rebecca, because I think it was Rebecca, you suggested her originally, didn't you? Yeah, I, I saw a story that um, a graduate student had solved an unsolvable problem um, and that put her on my radar. But Alex did the grunt work of actually figuring out the maths of it. It was, it, well, I figured out is you know, a generous <laughs> term, but I, I really, really had to read so hard to try and uh, understand it. It it's, um, reminds me of this historical maths problem called Fermat's Last Theorem, uh, which was extremely famous because it was... You know, it's centuries. Uh, Fermat, basically, a French mathematician, uh, said that he'd solved this incredibly insoluble maths problem, never left a proof, died, and mathematicians then spent centuries trying to solve it. Um, and it really struck minds because even though the answer was unbelievably difficult, the question was actually really easy to understand. That sort of really captured the public imagination. So going into the Lisa Picarillo, I was like, oh, maybe this is like Fermat's thing, where even though the answer is going to be really hard, I'll at least understand the question. But actually, it took me quite a long time to even understand the question. <laughs> um, <laughs> essentially, it's about not knots theory in maths. Um, and all knots can be grouped into being something called slice or not slice. So every single mathematical knot has the property of sliceness or it doesn't. And it's an enterprise of mathematicians to go around, you know, labelling knots a slice or not slice <laughs> and um basically no one could crack this specific knot uh until she did 
and she didn't even realize actually that she was doing something amazing because you know so many minds have spent 50 years trying to solve it and and she did it as extracurricular work um you know in a week and i guess maybe because she didn't know it was hard <laughs> she didn't know it was hard and didn't maybe that helps i mean she's a very uh, appealing choice anyone else yeah i've got um someone who was i thought was really quite interesting uh, last year we ran a piece about a uh, green architecture so architects trying to create buildings more in tune with their environment. And one person mentioned there was a Bangladeshi architect called Marina Tabassum. And she develops these lightweight houses made from sort of locally sourced materials that can perch on stilts uh, and move uh, when the waters rise. I quite like the idea of just having a house on stilts, just that sort of fantastic um, image. Uh, and of course, Bangladesh, the threat of climate change, it's, it's not only a sort of uh, a visionary idea, but also a, a, an eminently practical one. And I think it's quite nice to include people who are thinking practically, uh, as well as, you know, solving great mathematical problems theoretically. Yeah, although if I could put in a word for the old guard, as it were, like it's nice to have a couple of nonagenarians in there, along with the Lisa Piccarillo, because... Habermas, Jürgen Habermas, I didn't know a great deal about before and looked up for this. And um, I was quite um, impressed with the idea that, like, all of this fighting back against the kind of post-truth, post-modernists who've arguably reached their culmination in some of the Trump stuff did seem to be quite a sort of timely thing. And he's still around writing, you know, histories of philosophy, even now, having grown up watching the Nuremberg trials. So... I just put in a plea for people to remember the old as well as the new in all of this. David, Rebecca, any last word from either of you? Um, I So before I turned to journalism, I was really interested. I was in America, in Chicago, um, and working in interning at some criminal justice places. Um, so I actually came across the work of Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who's on the list as well, um, who's a, what she calls it. She calls herself a carceral geographer. And her idea is envisioning a world without prisons. Um, and it seems, you know, to people who might not come across this work very often, quite like a pie-in-the-sky idea. But she does an excellent job tracing um, what she calls abolitionist thinking from the prison throughout the ways in which public, uh, public life is funded. So be, you know, in America, public schools will get more funding if they put projects like drug searches at the gates and things like that. So she's kind of linking, you know, what seems like an isolated problem of prisons and weaving them and seeing how they interact with everyday life. Uh, and I find that so fascinating and relevant. This, um, you know, is quite practical. David, any last word from you? I think my pro personal choice would probably be Timothy Morton, who is mm. the academic at Rice University in Houston, um, who has really created a whole new vocabulary for how we talk about the environment and in particular the Anthropocene. Um, and you know, we're, we've all kind of heard before this idea of everything is being connected or everything is sort of related to one another, but we've never really understood how to, we can describe it in a day to day way. Um, and I just think his work with um, object oriented ontology, which sounds a bit abstract, but it's actually just essentially about that about the fact that all things are connected in one way or another. Um, but there is no such thing as the environment. We actually are part of the environment ourselves. And these are all really relevant things now. Um, and especially, I think, with the pandemic, we've all sort of learned how delicate things are. Um, so to be able to 
understand and navigate this whatever post-Covid world we come out of is going to be really important. I think you've nailed it because we couldn't finish on a loftier note than object-orientated ontology. <laughs> so we're going to leave it there for now. Thanks for joining us this week on The Prospect Interview. If you enjoyed our podcast, please do leave us a rating or a review. And don't forget to vote for those top thinkers on our website. Rebecca Lou's our producer. Goodbye, stay safe, and we'll see you next week.